0: The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One.
1: With the new year ahead, it's a great time to set goals to make sure it'll be a great year for you and your business. And making that perfect hire can help set your team up for success. But where do you find that right person? You can post on a job board and hope the right person will apply. But why leave it up to chance when you can post your job where people go every day to make connections, grow their career, And discover opportunities LinkedIn most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly but nine out of ten LinkedIn members are open to and interested in new opportunities like yours and with most of the US workforce on LinkedIn posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people people with the right skills and background for your role who are also ready for something new It's the best way to find a person who will help grow your business, and that's why a new hire is made every eight seconds using LinkedIn. So find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash Taffer and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash Taffer to get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com slash Taffer. Terms and conditions apply. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. This is our 37th No Excuses podcast, and I'm John Taffer. Hello, everybody. Thanks for being here. Pretty uh, powerful week for me, Corey. I've been down in Florida shooting uh, the new season of Bar Rescue. Yeah. and I had uh, uh, one of the most emotional episodes I've ever had. I mean, it's still, it's I'm still emotional about it when I think about it, and it had a surprise ending that after 170 bar rescues, this has never happened before. So I'm a little uh, uh, taken aback by it in a positive way, and in, in, uh, uh, all of the amazing emotion that I dealt with this week and. You know what's amazing, Corey, is is after 170 bar rescues, wow. the, everyone is still different. You know, the people are still right, different. Yeah. They're still challenging. And, and uh, uh, I don't tell people this very often, but last season I actually started thinking about, you know, do, do I want to stop? Because I love making a show, but honestly, I don't love being on the road 35, 40 weeks a year. And I really thought about it. And then, you know, uh, uh, that hug at the end means something, Corey. When, and, and when I get that, it's pretty inspiring. It's tough to give that up when you can, you know, really try to change people and, and change your businesses and set up their future. This past week, I didn't save a bar. I saved a life. It's, it's, I can't wait till this particular episode airs. And I'm back next week. I got one more in Florida, three in Dallas, three in uh, Kansas City. And then three, and where's the last, oh, Denver, or vice versa, somewhere along Oh, man, you're going to be flying all over. I am, but it's, uh, uh, so we got uh, 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 10 that we've already done, that we've already shot. Those premiere March 3rd next week, buddy, a week, six days from now. So uh, I'm pretty excited about that. And then uh, these 12 more that we're making, so there's 22 more episodes coming which I'm pretty darn excited about and they're good ones You know, it's interesting after all these episodes you'd think they would be uh, uh what do you think that they'd be less emotional for me you know they'd be more mechanical but right, fact, yeah. in fact they're not when, when you look in somebody's eyes uh, and you know their life their business their co- kids college or whatever is on the line uh, uh, there's never anything old about that you know it seems to hit you every time anyway so before we get going here, I want everybody to please take a second, hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts or go to podcast PodcastOne.com or the Podcast One app so that you can get your new episodes of No Excuses every Tuesday. And a quick thanks to my sponsors this week, Quicken Loans and True Car. So buzzing around the news today and i don't know about you corey i'm still recovering from the last election and the politics and the divisiveness and then you know all the ugliness that seems to be connected to our election every time and i was in the newspaper and i was reading an amazing article uh, uh, of an election that we should all know about and this might be one of the more appropriate uh, uh, moves by uh, uh, our voters in the country so a dead mayor Makes it through to the final round. So there's a dead mayor. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> yes. So let me see, in Edmund, Oklahoma, there is a dead mayor on the ballot. And the amazing thing is, in a three-horse primary in Edmund, Oklahoma his name is Charles Lamb. He finished second behind the other candidate, Dan O'Neill, who described himself as, who's described as sort of awkward. So, Mr. Lem, who had been mayor since 2011, <laughs> put his name forward for re-election before he died. Jeez. So, so, the guy who he beat just said, "You know, I'm a little astonished <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you when you're beat by a dead guy." But you know, you know what's great about that? A dead guy really can't screw things up. You know, right, yeah. the, things just, uh, just sort of keeps move along. Quiet <laughs> yeah, it does. Is you know, things just move along and. You know, nothing too drastic happens, and I'm not certain any of us want anything too drastic to happen. So here's another one. You know, I, I go on Fox News and Fox Business pretty often. I also go on MSNBC and CNBC, and I try to keep it balanced. But Pete Hegseth, who's a host on Fox Business and Fox News, uh, 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 would confess to never washing his hands. And his his co-host told viewers that he had been eating day-old pizza that day on set from the day before. So when you look at this guy, he's clean-cut, suit, looks great. He doesn't wash his hands. He eats day-old pizza. And, you know, he doesn't believe, and this is a quote, he doesn't believe that quote, germs are not a real thing. He feels that they don't exist if he can uh, if they're not seen by the naked eye, and if he exposes himself to them all the time, he's quote inoculating himself.
0: Hmm.
1: So you know, uh, 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 there's something to it. Howie Mandel says about not shaking hands when you read something like this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that' and interesting. It is. He hasn't washed his hands in quote a decade. Anyway, oh. you know it's interesting how. Uh, uh, when you look at laws in a country, certain things can be regulated but not made illegal. For example, alcohol is a good example. You know, when prohibition ended and, and the illegality of it ha- uh, took place, uh, 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 states could regulate it. But in most cases, they couldn't eliminate it. That had to happen at a very local level. And when you take a look at e- even a Native American, uh, reservation land, uh, uh, um, uh, On that land, anything that's regulated uh, on non-Native American land can be unregulated on Native American land. Anyway, regulation is a way that they control our use or ability to do something without eliminating it because in many, many cases, the Constitution doesn't let them eliminate it. Well, Hawaii, of all states, came up with a fascinating concept. So they're going to regulate cigarette smoking. And they're going to regulate it by raising the legal smoking age to 100 years old. Hey. So, I mean, I'm not sure I'm against this myself. But what's interesting is the whole legal premise of it, Corey, because what they're doing is by regulating, they're eliminating. Yeah. So, you know, in theory, could I regulate that you can't drive your car? You know, until you're uh, uh, after you're 50 years old, or you know, so it opens up a really interesting legal uh, box. And I'm curious to see how it goes. Not that I'm uh, uh, I don't endorse the whole premise of less smoking, uh, but it's fascinating that this would be a way that they would try to go at eliminating something is by just regulating it to the point that nobody can do it, right? Uh, uh, So, anyway, I thought that was sort of interesting. Yeah, it is. And then I I was uh, uh, looking at. As uh, both Trump and Kim from North Korea, Kim Jong-un, uh, prepare for the summit, and they're going to Vietnam. I'll, if you know that, Corey. They're going to Vietnam for the next round of their denuclearization and, and uh, 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 relationship-building discussions, for lack of a better term. So in Vietnam, there's a new cocktail, and apparently it's the hottest cocktail in the country. Very creative. It's called the, quote, Peace negotiation. <laughs> so think about this: all over the country uh, of Vietnam right now, people are ordering peace negotiation cocktails. And I must—I say, I tried to see what it was, but I can't find what the hell is in it. Uh, not that I care all that much, but I couldn't find it. So, remember last week? Or was it the week before? Core, we were talking about my book, No Excuses. Yep. And we were talking so much about fear, and and, and you know, I've had so many listener calls. And, you know, it always seems that people are talking about fear, fear, fear. And, and, you know, I always thought to myself, you know, what are we scared of? And I was looking at some of the worst (laughs) failures uh, 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 that we've seen. And I've talked about personal failures, right? People like Abraham Lincoln was a failure until they were president. And if if anybody wants to to search on the Internet, you know, America's biggest failures, you're going to find that the same names often are on the same list of America's biggest successes because they failed till they were successful. Uh, uh, Or in some cases, they were successful and then they failed in the end. But in any event, because successful people tend to take risks, often they're on both sides of the list. I wanted to look at what are some of the biggest business failures. And a lot of these, Corey, you actually know. They're going to be memories to you. But, you know, there's there's a story that I want to tell after this or or, a point to this. But, for example... (laughs) Senior executives at 20th Century Fox, in the early days of Star Wars, when they were writing the first contract with George Lucas for Star Wars, they wanted to pay George Lucas $20,000 less for making the movie. Only $20,000 less. Hmm. So for him to take that $20,000 less, he got all the merchandising rights. Oh, So he paid all the $20,000 they screwed up, and Lucas got all of the merchandising rights, which, by the way, have been approximately, oh, God, almost $30 billion. Talk about a screw-up. It's really unbelievable. And then this was a pretty good one. The owner, by the way, of Western Union in 1876 was a guy by the name of William Orton. And William Orton... Alexander Graham Bell, who of course we know invented the telephone, goes to Orton and he's starving. He tried, he invented this thing. He has no freaking money, Corey. He's like in the bottom of the bucket. Uh, uh, um, Alexander Graham Bell. So he goes to Orton and he pitches him to buy the telephone patent. You ready? Yep. For $100. Wow. Wow which back then wasn't a small amount of money, $100. This is in the year, uh, $100 is now $2 million. This is in the year 1876. So that's how much $100 is now $2 million. Jeez. In any event, uh, uh, he pitches him. Orton says, this will never have any commercial value. The whole premise of telephones is BS. So he passed, and of course he had much more money than the $2 million. And of course the, tele- the uh, uh, telephone story goes on. How about this one? You know who invented the first digital camera? I don't. Kodak. Oh, okay. It's amazing. When was the last time you saw a Kodak camera? It's
2: been a while, actually.
1: Because they blew it. Think about this. They invented the freaking technology and then completely blew it in using it and marketing it. So it's unbelievable how they're gone. And then they double whammyed themselves. After they blew digital photography, uh, uh, um, they blew the... uh, uh, film deal uh, with the u.s olympics and they let their competitor come in uh, uh, fuji and <laughs> let them take the olympics contracts so between losing digital and losing the olympics kodak is now a pretty insignificant company that, that most people many young people don't even know existed this was another great one i love this one so amblin productions great movie company right spielberg's company yeah. in 1981 offered Mars Company a cross-promotion opportunity to put M&Ms in the feeling, in the movie, E.T., <laughs> right? Big yeah. movie and, and, and M&Ms, and you know, they turned it down, and it was for very, very little money. What's interesting is when Reese's Pieces agreed to the deal, when E.T. came out, their sales went up 65%. It was freaking historic. Wow. It was one of the most successful ever. On-air promotions done. And, and, you know, so that was a real screw-up by Morris. And I'm making a point here. This is a good one. (laughs) A guy by the name of Gerald Levin, the chairman of Time Warner, uh, uh, bought AOL. And when he bought AOL, when you negotiate a deal, Corey, a public company like that, normally I have an opportunity if the stock value goes down or something happens, I can renegotiate. If something really material changes in the deal, he didn't put that clause in the deal. So he puts paper down, he signs, and he has to buy AOL, and then AOL's share value goes down 50%. Completely screwed. He lost billions and billions of dollars. Huge business failures. These CEOs weren't scared. They made the move, right, Corey? Yeah. Made that leap. Yep, they sure did. Where do you think they are now?
0: Probably on the top.
1: Yeah, they sure the hell are. (laughs) Every one of these guys who made these screw-ups are multi, multi, multi multi-millionaires. Wow. And that's the point of this story. You see, if we don't take the chance, we never have that chance. But it's when we take chances, if we're good at what we do, we catch our breath, we lick our wounds, we stand up, and we go back at it. These people, publicly, these companies failed. They walked with millions. They walked with experience. They walked with knowledge and contacts and relationships they could take to their next deal. Even though the businesses failed, every one of them today is hugely successful. So, you know, there you have it. When you look at fear of moving forward in business, I think we just put a kibosh on that one. What do you think, Corey? Yeah, I'd say. So, so you know, the whole premise of fear and holding back and waiting and all that is crazy. You ever want to be a spy, Corey? Oh, yeah. Always. Me too. I always wanted to be a spy, and I remember, you know, watching James Bond when I was a kid and other spy movies, and, you know, the spies got the girls, right? Oh, yeah. They always had the suits, the money, the guns, the cars, Cars, right? All that stuff. So, I mean, they had everything. There was no gig better than that. Well, uh, uh, I'm really excited. This week I have Mike McGowan. Uh, who wrote the book, Ghost, My 30 Years as an Undercover FBI Agent. Mike McGowan is the only FBI agent in 109 years who infiltrated not one, not two, but three mafia families. Whoa! When an agent can infiltrate one mafia family, it's a big freaking deal. Mike infiltrated three. And it's interesting how he uses the term LCN, LCN. You know, La Costa Nostra is the term that he used, LCN. But you know, I've, been, I've been so looking forward to talking to Mike. His inside stories of what happened to him in undercover assignments. Imagine this, Carl. You're in the middle of a drug cartel deal for millions of dollars worth of cocaine. You're on your own, buddy. No, Sounds, wo- sounds like a movie. No weapons. You know, no wires. No video. Nobody watching you. You're just in the room on your own. And if your instincts are wrong, you're going to die. A- and a uh, couple of times, uh, Mike came very close. So I'm really excited to have him. And I'll be back in just a minute with Mike again. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Every car comes with its share of stories. How about that ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up your first date? Or the luxury package you got after a big promotion? Or how about the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer long? While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car's worth is when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to True Car, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then just answer a few questions like navigation, moonroof, and watch as they bump up your value. High mileage, you already know it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. And once you're finished, you can get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer, not available in all areas.
0: Tapper's back. This is No Excuses with John Tapper.
1: We all dream of, of, of having a, a, a life and a career like you did, and it's an honor to have you here. And I first want to start by saying thanks for all the services and everything that you've provided, keeping all of us safe. But, Mike, I want, I want to know about how you became Mike McGowan. So tell me where you grew up.
2: Uh, I grew up outside of Boston in a uh, industrial town called Haverhill, a uh, blue-collar um, city, a decaying mill town. My, my dad was a, a local cop. My mom worked in a um, trucking company as a secretary on midnight. And, uh, we had five kids, and it was just a blue-collar existence. Uh, everybody was the same.
1: And did you know you, you know, wanted to? Know. Did you know you wanted I'm to be? Sorry? Did you know you wanted to be a police officer when you were young? Did you want to follow in a family tradition, or? or uh, 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 yeah, sir. So you knew that yeah, when you were young.
2: When you were, when you grew up where I did, you uh, kind of uh, chose your path early on. So, my dad was a cop. My grandfather was a cop. So I didn't have much of a choice. That was the family business, and. You know, I grew up with guys who chose to go one way or the other, and some of them went to jail, and some of them went into police work, firework. So, yeah, it was something I would never, I had no way in anticipation or um, interest in joining the FBI eventually, but it just, that's the way the, it broke. So, yeah, I, uh, I had planned to be a cop all along, and I, I was a cop for about five years.
1: You know, it's interesting when when I look at your history, the hundred nine history of, of the FBI. Nobody's ever infiltrated three different mafia families. Did you know you were going to go undercover? Was it a dream of yours? Because from what I've read, you just sort of slipped into it.
2: I, I slipped. I stumbled. I don't know what the right word <laughs> is. There was no <clears throat> there was no plan. What happened when I when I joined the FBI at that time period. If you had been in police work or military, they just automatically assumed you could work undercover. There was no training. There was no um, process. So they basically threw you out on the street. And uh, I was horrible at the beginning. I I didn't know what I was doing, but I loved it from the first time I tried it. So I I worked at getting better at it, and um, I eventually learned how to do it by working with informants, cooperators, real bad guys, who taught me how to think and talk and act and manipulate like, like them.
1: It's interesting because many of the, of the crime families that you broke into were ethnic, but yet you're not Italian, nor, nope. nor are you Mexican. So, so it nope. was, I'm guessing, even more difficult to infiltrate uh, uh, when you're not ethnically aligned with them.
2: Well, you know, that, that, that is somewhat of a myth in the sense that uh, there's only one color in the world and it's green. <laughs> and if you can convince any ethnic group that there's a financial incentive to deal with another group, you you have a shot. So we always we always built our plan around uh, we would provide either a service or a a conveyance, something that the the targeted group would need. Uh, but it was difficult because, especially with like the Italian the Italians these are guys who grew up you know next door to one another for thirty years and. All of a sudden, I'm the new kid on the block every time around.
1: That's right, know, and they grew up together, so I they can. so they trust that's each right. other so, inherently.
2: And again, undercover work, uh, which comes across in the book, it uh, eventually it's it's betrayal. It's gaining someone's trust and betraying them. And um, you know that's something that some people have difficulty uh, accepting. Uh, that was my job uh, for a lot of these guys, especially the Italians. I really enjoyed being in their company, except. They did one extra thing that I didn't do and that was my job to gather evidence.
1: Right. Was so, that
2: other thing they were
1: doing. So, your book, Ghost, My 30 Years as an FBI Undercover Agent, I must tell you, I read it the past couple of days. It's a killer book. And for nobody who's read it, I just want to give them a little synopsis here. For over 30 years, Mike, you successfully infiltrated the Italian La Casa Nostra, the Russian organized crime groups, Mexican drug cartels, outlaw motorcycle gangs, contract murderers, corrupt politicians, and all your work resulted in arrests, seizures lengthy incarcerations and, and you've been recognized at the highest level of the FBI and Department of Justice for your undercover assignments Mike did you get scared?
2: You know I, I, get, I get asked that question a lot and the best way to answer that is obviously there's a, there are times that you're uncomfortable but you have to remember you know we're professionals we do our job in a professional way we mitigate the risk factors as much as possible. The planning that goes into these operations are extensive. And and again, once, and I say this proudly, having been a police officer before as an FBI agent, every cop and every agent for every organization that goes to work every day, you know, runs the risk of not going home that night. Yep. But it becomes part of your job. And when you swear to an oath, uh, you accept that risk. So, yeah, there were times that I was scared, um, but that's something you have to work through. And the more experience I became, the more comfortable I got that I could pretty much talk myself out of any situation. And
1: you, thankfully, for 30 years, I did. <laughs> uh, were you very involved in all the advanced planning as the as the operative who goes in as well? Or I'm guessing the planning team is different than the operating team, or do they tend to be the same?
2: Again, it's changed over the years. Uh, the, undercover, the undercover is simply part of a team. There's always a case agent, there's support people, there's surveillance people, so you're part of a team. But obviously when you go on stage or when the lights go on, you're on your own. So you do have a, a lot to do with the planning and execution. And again, by doing it over and over and over again, each time I did it, I learned from my mistakes and I got better at it so that by the time I was finishing my career, I was very comfortable in taking on almost any assignment.
1: It's interesting when I, when I read that about, you know, I'm in reality television, so, so I don't get the chance to plan things. They're sort of thrown at me a little bit. And you know, I'm thinking about you in, the, in these undercover situations and you have a plan and you go in and obviously you build relationships of trust with people. Now, when you're building these relationships of trust, you got to start to like some of them, right? Because even criminals can be great Absolutely. guys when you sit and talk to them. you know A murderer can be Absolutely. a lot of fun for 20 minutes when you talk to them. Yep. So, so nope. these are becoming friends, and you're starting to enjoy your time with them. But yet you never lose sight with, with uh, your purpose when you're there. I get that. But there's one story I'd love for you to tell, and that's the bathrobe story, if you don't mind. Because and, and, that was a great situation where, with all the planning that you did in real time, you made a last second decision that could have saved the entire operation, something as silly as that choice.
2: Yes, and that's, you know, I enjoy that story. And, and doing what we do because it's so serious, you know, you have to have some humor in what we do. Yeah. So, in, in that particular case, that's the Chapo Guzman case. And uh, there were four of us, four FBI undercovers, getting ready for the first meeting in the case. This was a critical meeting. Uh, We had sent an informant into Mexico to meet directly with Guzman. And he sent his first cousin uh, to Miami to meet with us. And the other three undercovers and I uh, were preparing for the meeting. And everyone in the room was a a 20-year guy. We had a lot of experience in that room. But... I noticed that everybody was extremely nervous and, and tight, and and that was to be expected. This was a huge case; we had a lot of eyes on us. And while we were waiting for the for Guzman's cousin to show up, I looked around the room and somehow thought I needed to break the ice. So I went in. I just went into the bathroom, and uh, there was this gaudy-looking purple velour bathrobe. And I had on like a five thousand dollar suit. <laughs> I was supposed to be the head of an Italian crime organization. So you
1: had to look sharp.
2: I had a, <laughs> I had a, yeah, I had a five thousand dollar suit on, and I went in, and I took off the suit, and I put on the stupid bathrobe, and I walked out on video, <laughs> just before the subject got there, and and the place cracked up, and everybody just took a deep breath and relaxed. And what's what's funny about that is. When we did do the prosecution of that case, the prosecutors would just refer to it as the bathrobe meeting. That was everybody knew exactly what day we were talking about with that. So I just did, you know, I made a last second decision to lighten the mood and get everybody ready to go.
1: What happens in those close calls when you're you're in an undercover situation? You're by yourself, so you have no backup, really. And and you really sense that it's going bad. And and, and I'm guessing you feel that in your gut, because I know when I look in someone's eyes, when I'm starting to lose them, I can tell, right? Absolutely. So
2: what it it is, it's it's things that you've learned all your life, and, and you put it into practice when you do it. So it's recognizing in advance when things are not going well. And what we teach in the FBI, and a successful undercover meeting consists of two pieces. One is you go home safe, and two, you get to go back the next day. So there's nothing that you have to do to finish the job that day. So what I, what I do and now that I train undercover is what I make sure people understand is, you have to recognize before the other side if things are starting to go bad. And the only thing I can guarantee you in an undercover operation is whatever you had planned, it's not going to go exactly as you planned. So once you accept that, once you understand that you have to be flexible, you have to be adaptable, but you have to be ahead of them. you mm-hmm. got to know, and you have to know how to get into a room and more importantly, how to get out of a room. You so know, there's been times that I've called off meetings and other agents who were marked in the meeting thought the meeting was going very well but I knew that it wasn't going the way we wanted to and you never want to be you want to get out of there sooner rather than later so I just I always had a plan how to get out of a room again without drawing attention to you know you're not going to jump up and race out of the room you you get out of there the right way but at the same time you've you saw that it wasn't going in the direction you wanted to, and you, you you called it a day.
1: So sometimes you really can't rush undercover, then can you? Because it can only go at no. the pace that the trust does. I'm guessing, no. right?
2: And what 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 people need to understand, and especially you know, working undercover, even in law enforcement, only about ten percent of law enforcement work undercover. So the other ninety percent of your coworkers think you're a little bit goofy. <laughs> And they don't. They they have. They look at everything black and white from the you know from a special agents position where as an undercover you have to put yourself in the bad guy's shoes. Every game is an away game. You're you're not on your home turf. Right. You're on their turf. So you make decisions that other agents may um, question later. But you have to have the confidence that your decision is the right one because ultimately the only goal is to go home that night.
1: You know, you, you hear about a capo, and, 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 and you know, you, you assume, especially when you watch television, you assume that they're sophisticated criminals, right? They're doing background checks, and they have people on their computers, and you know, they're accessing databases and everything. Do they? Are they good at due diligence and checking things out? And are they as capable they lot, as we think they are?
2: They get a lot more credit than they do. Yeah, and I'll, I'll cite I'll cite two examples in the book. Um, the, uh, the Providence, Rhode Island case, the patriarchy case, uh, with the subject was Maddie googly. Maddie. He was, yeah. he was very savvy, very skilled. He was somebody that <clears throat> I had to be on my toes every second I was with him. And it's not necessarily so much what they, the due diligence they can do it. They're just used to being around bad guys and they're used to sniffing out good guys. So he, he was a challenge. And then later in my career, I did a case. <clears throat> against the underboss uh, up in Boston named Carmen D'Annunzio, the cheese man. Mm -hmm. And, and he he was not the brightest bulb in the package. He, he met with me a complete stranger and uh, I got more out of him in a 20 minute conversation that the, the investigation got in two years. He never should have met with me. There was no reason for him to meet with me other than he was greedy. And we just took advantage of that. You have to know what your opponent's Achilles heel is. And
1: a lot of time it's uh, strictly cash and we use that to our advantage. Yep. It's all about the money in the end. There's another great story that I read about uh, 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 um, uh, uh, a a coat and a photograph in a strip club.
2: (laughs) Right. right. When I was brand new, and this is, this is how I teach now, how I teach undercover when I didn't have the benefit of any training. So everything I did and the agents that who came in at my time, we kind of learned by trial and error. And I was sent into a strip joint to look for a fugitive and uh in this just this decadent uh strip club and I mis I mistakenly took the photo with me and I stuck it in my jacket so I could recognize the fugitive he was in there and during the evening I went into the bathroom and I came out. And I reached into my coat, and the photo was gone. So I don't think it <laughs> fell out. I don't think it was an accident. And I just got my ass out of there as,
1: as quick as I could. That was my next wish. And then it was a time that you really did actually fear for your life in Cafe Vittoria. Yeah. Right? That, that was, was a bad day. Yep. Another bad day. Would, would you tell that story?
2: Yep. So in that, in that case, that was an uh, Italian uh, LCN case. Uh, I had been working with that group for about five months and we were getting near the end of the case. And over a Memorial Day weekend, the FBI received information that the, the Italians had learned that I was an undercover FBI agent. And they wouldn't tell me, the FBI wouldn't tell me how they learned that, but they told me that they were getting ready to pull the plug, they didn't want me to go back. And myself and the case agent argued, we would go back, but I would meet them only out on the street. I wouldn't go into any buildings or anywhere where, you know, I couldn't get some help if I needed it. Mm-hmm. So reluctantly, they allowed me to go back, and sure enough, I met the the group at the uh, Cafe Vittoria, where, where I had been dozens of times, and I had just planned to stand outside and have a quick chat. And they brought me into the uh, they brought me into the cafe. Uh, which at first didn't alarm me too much because i had been in there and sure enough they wanted me inside but then they said we had to go down in the basement and when you hear that yeah. <clears throat> that's, that's you know fit. not a good day yep. um, there were three of them they were all big strong guys i wasn't going to you know fight three guys so they dragged me down into the basement and i i truly believed at that point that that might have been the my last day on earth. But again, you have to keep your composure and, and talk your way through it. And what happened on that day, and again, it's just like a funny story is, there was a jukebox down there playing Frank Sinatra's My Way. And I started to laugh because that was the only song my dad, who had been dead for 20 years, mm. it's the only song my dad ever played. And to me, it was a signal from him, you know, basically saying, you're gonna get out of here alive. And what happened was we sat down and we negotiated for more cocaine, and they eventually told me the reason they brought me in the basement was they had heard the FBI was uh, watching them and they wanted to protect me from the FBI, so (laughs) they they didn't drag me down in the basement to kill me. They dragged me down to protect me from the FBI. Wow.
1: So when you take a look at your career, you know one thing that that was really uh, uh, surprising to me is how little training you got to go undercover. So you go into yep. these situations, and you really back then, I guess, there was no training, there was no computer systems, so you didn't have really reliable background information on people either. In very many cases, you were reacting to hearsay and, and street information, right?
2: Right. And what what it is is, and again, this is a it's a two edged sword. So the way that I was the way that I learned to work undercover was literally to go out there and do it and make mistakes and learn from the mistakes. We don't allow that anymore in the FBI. There's a very formalized training process now. It's a very difficult training to get through. That's the evolution of 30 years of, of FBI undercover advancement. But, you know, what happened when I was an agent versus what goes on today, they're, they're two, two different yeah. Time
1: periods; it, it just doesn't happen anymore. And I'm guessing today, the,
2: te- the system now is much better than it was when I
1: started. Also, I'm guessing technology is is uh, plays a part exactly. where sometimes we don't have to put a human asset in, right? We can capture well, the, information through technology. the
2: uh, The fall of the uh, the fall of the um, undercover empire eventually will be the internet because it's just you know it's a destructive tool when you're trying to portray yourself as somebody who you're not. And, and nowadays, you, you know, any, everybody knows the challenges faced when you, when you try to say you're somebody and somebody looks into your background. So, you know, we're, we're trying to address that. It's a very difficult hump to get over. I yeah. preferred it back in the day where I could say, you know, I was in prison for five years and nobody could verify that. Yeah. That's You can't do that anymore.
1: Yep, so that's where we're back to the due diligence of these organizations. If they're really good, uh, uh, they can catch us sometimes, I guess, today. Whereas in the past, yeah, you you could become who you wanted to be. Big,
2: big big challenge. And change it. You know,
1: what about when somebody gets out? For example, I was reading that, uh, um, let's see, who was it? Uh, um, Griglometti. He was indicted yep. in 2005 and he just got out in 2014. what happens when a, a, a criminal who you've indicted caused incarceration uh, are you notified when they're released is is there any procedure in that regard
2: no you're not officially notified but <clears throat> there's enough um, there's enough word of mouth within law enforcement so when these guys are starting to get ready to come out I kind of I normally get a heads up. And again, um, in fairness to them, they served their time. They did what they yep. did. They got they got locked up. So you know they're back in society. I wish them well. I hope they don't go back into
1: sure. You have no beef the with crime. Them. Yep. You wish them well so, at that point. Yep. You want them to be a contributing member of society.
2: Yeah. I have. You know, this stuff really doesn't get personal unless they unless they hurt or kill an FBI agent. You know, this is just me doing my job and them doing their jobs. And you know, sometimes we win. And sometimes they. They win, but it, it's not personal. I've never had a anybody I ever locked up. You know, it, it was just doing my job.
1: Who was the nicest, most likable bad guy <laughs> that you ever knew?
2: The most likable bad guy I ever knew was uh, he actually was an informant, but he was a bad guy, uh, and uh, he just passed away last year. Ron Provetti was the informant who introduced me into the Philadelphia LCN
1: and LCN is like a extra. Uh
2: the Joey Molino family down mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. Uh Prevetti was a he was a military veteran, a Philadelphia police officer and then he crossed the line and he became a a mobster and then later he agreed to cooperate with the FBI. Mm-hmm. So he was somebody that, you know, I I enjoyed and he taught me a ton of stuff about how to think and act like a bad guy. So I would put Ron up at the the top as far as these uh, criminals, and this may be strange for your audience to hear, I got along and enjoyed most of them. Most of them are, they have a sense of humor, they're they're blue-collar guys like I was, yep. you know, they, they just they just made a decision. When I went to police work, they went the other way, and, yeah. you know, we have a lot more in common than differences.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So, so the fact of the matter is, you cuffed a lot of guys you really liked. And it's interesting to to, uh, uh, have you ever said to them, listen, good luck. I wish you well as they're on their way to the holding tank. Absolutely.
2: And I've had, yeah, I've I've always tried it. I I learned this as a police officer. When I was a police officer, this is the way you treat somebody with respect until they give you a reason not to. So I would always treat anybody that I dealt with professionally, respectfully, including, you know, major drug traffickers, major mob guys. And when you get to the level of the FBI and the types of people, you know, you're at the top level of, you know, uh, law enforcement in yeah. the sense that you're investigating serious groups. Yeah. A lot of them are very professional. They really are. They're not, yeah, you know, yeah, there's violence involved, et cetera, but they don't want to have the attention of the FBI on them. So they try to stay under the radar. So there's plenty of guys that I locked up that I had no, uh, Ill will towards again, it, it was my job to collect evidence. And if they, call it outside the lines that was my job
1: so that's what i did yeah, that's interesting what is the uh, what would they say to you after they realized that you were undercover because obviously they've trusted you they now like you they've had dinner with you lunch with you they've sat they spent hours with you uh, uh they find yeah. out at some point that you're the guy who got them do they give yeah, you is it a hatred um, there's, there's is it a, various, there's, is there's it respectful
2: actions um i've had guys you know, uh, in, usually when the reaction comes, it's when I like I go to court. Yep. So I've had guys. I had one guy wave to me, and he still didn't believe I was an agent, even <laughs> after I got up and identified myself. He, he refused to believe I was an agent. I had another guy point his finger at me with a gun. You know,
1: yep.
2: telling that you know my time was coming.
1: Yeah.
2: Um. But a lot of times, once you know, and as the undercover, you very seldom are involved in the arrest. You're not present when they arrested. Yep. So unless they go to court
1: a lot of times you never see these guys again. So that's the best of all, obviously, when your cover isn't blown at all and you're not even needed right. there. Right. Do they ever treat you with respect, saying, you know what, you're on that side, I'm in this side, you got me this time, congratulations? Is it an environment of respect? Do they respect your role? There, there,
2: yeah, there there is there is a level of respect. I tell a funny story now since the book came out. Um, Bobby Luisi, which was the first guy in the Italian case I locked up in 1999, he did 18 years in federal prison as a result of that case. And after the book came out, he contacted my co-writer and asked for a copy of the book. <laughs> and my co-writer said, "Yeah, I'll be happy to send you one. Do you want Mike to sign it? And Bobby said, he, he'd never sign it for me. <laughs> and they called me and I said, yeah, I'm happy to sign it. He, he served his time. He, yep. He's now in the ministry. He's turned his life around, or, or so he claims. So I have no, you know, hard feelings. I wrote to him, Bobby. You know, no hard feelings. Yeah. Enjoy.
1: What do you feel about the political environment of the FBI today? And this is not a political show. I'm not looking for yay and yes. Yeah. Does no. it concern you when you look at what's going on out there and the credibility and the reviews yes, and the investigations the, yeah. of the investigations? And, and yes,
2: I'm very disappointed. I, I really. I tell people, again, if you want to read about what the FBI is supposed to be doing, read my book. If you want to read about political stuff in the FBI, read somebody else's book. It's just it's nothing that I ever wanted to be involved in. I stayed out of that mess my whole career. I just wanted to work cases and and do what I was supposed to do.
1: Yeah, There's no place for politics in the FBI at the end of the day, is there?
2: Not in my opinion,
1: no. No, it's really – it's about the evidence and and what we do. It's unfortunate that politics is brought into it because you are the example of the ultimate integrity. You know, the one who looks somebody in the eye and just follows the law, follows the Constitution, does what they should do straight down the line. And, you know, I want to thank you, Mike. Your book is unbelievable. Uh, uh, Please go check this one out. I don't recommend that many books on this podcast, but Ghost, My 30 Years as an FBI Undercover Agent. You know, the stories of the different groups that you've got. I mean, (laughs) you caused the indictment and incarceration of a boss, an undercover boss, two capos, a national union president, union officials, Dozens of La Casa Nostra associates, no other agent has infiltrated more mafia families than you. And, and, and uh, you know, Mike, if it wasn't for people like you, I think our country would unravel. You know, you put yourself in a line of fire and, you know, military gets so much credit and they should, of course, for protecting our freedom. But, you know, you should get that same credit. Uh, you've protected our security and our freedom as much as any soldier overseas has. Thank you, buddy. It was an honor to have you. Thank you, John. Wow. I mean, think about him in an undercover situation. His palms are sweating. He can't show any nerves. He's wearing the wrong clothes. Suddenly he senses they might know who I am. I better get out of here. I'll pick this up tomorrow. So imagine those moments. We see them on TV all the time. He actually lived it. When you think about it, over 30 years, Mexican cartels, three different mafia families. He brought down El Chapo, for Christ's sakes. You know, when you think about this, and he didn't have any training, they didn't do training back then in the FBI, this is a guy who showed up every day. And there's a lesson to be learned in life. He showed up every day. He didn't know he was going to be undercover. He became it. He didn't know what cases he was going to do. He just showed up every day, thought about it, and got through that day. Unlike us, we show up every day to make money. We show up every day to do things that hopefully we enjoy in our lives. Think about Mike. Mike showed up every day thinking that might be his last day, but he showed up anyway. So, honestly, as long as we show up every day and work that day to the best of our ability, we can start to have a resume like Mike McGowan. And I'll be right back with my favorite part of the show, Audience Calls. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Shut it down. All
2: right, John. New week and new callers. Let's get in it. it. We have Sahar here from New York, but it looks like she's originally from California. She's a hairstylist, and she's built
1: quite the clientele, so she's trying to start her own salon. Hi Sahar, how you doing? Nice to talk to you. I know,
0: nice to. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Well,
1: I'm excited to help you when, when I read your note. So, so you're a hairstylist from California. You moved to New York to chase your dreams, which which I'm all about. So I think that's freaking awesome. And thank uh, you so much. So, so you've gotten really good as a hair cutter. Obviously, you've built your yes. client. You've built your clientele, which is really really cool. And now you've got this big choice ahead of you. So now that I set all that up for you, you're thinking of starting your own business now. Yes. Wow. Big move.
0: And I know I actually, I've worked so hard for this. I didn't actually like think this was going to happen, but I kind of like came to me. I always like thought, you know, like I, this was always a dream. And finally I was like, you know, like I built a pretty well clientele and, Mm and, Sure. Like next year, I was thinking of starting it. I just wanted another year to actually have like that solid clientele, and now I'm, I'm ready. I just need to find a location, and I'm just kind of confused. I was—I just have never had like a business plan, plan before, so mm-hmm. I just had a few questions about that. too, like, how do I start a business plan? And um, and I found an investor, but I just want to know, like, how do I present? my business plan to her like should i find a like a creative way to show her or Mm -hmm. do i just like you know old-fashioned way by paper or you know what i mean i i'm just kind of confused as to how to start this (laughs) is your investor here? or or she like i see the vision but i can't i don't know how to create a plan
1: okay let's talk so is your investor a male or female
0: She's a female.
1: Okay. So, so, you know, there might be an interesting way to do it. Bring her in. Give her a full treatment. And at the end, look at her and say, hold up the mirror and say, you know, how much of a price do you put on your own beauty? How many people would like to look as good as you do today? Oh, wow. So if you believe in the way you look right now, you know others will believe in it too. That's why I want to open a salon with you. Let me show you my business plan. Now she's in before you start. I like starting things in a dramatic kind of a way like that. So bring her in. Give her the works. I mean, make her beautiful. Hold up that mirror and ask her how much looking good means to her. She'll That's, say everything.
0: amazing. She'll
1: say everything. <laughs> And then say, how many other people is it important to? She'll say, millions and millions of women. So, so that's what I want to do with you. And, and so let's talk about a business plan for a couple of minutes. So there's an organization okay. called SCORE, S-C-O-R-E.org. You want to jot that down. And SCORE.org is a completely free business, small business support organization. I'm a big advocate of SCORE. SCORE has 13,000 mentors. Who are retired and professional business executives who donate their time to help people like you start small businesses? So they'll help you. Put, okay. It's really it's completely free. They don't want a dime. It's a completely nonprofit called SCORE. Other things that you can do is there's actually software, business plan software, and it asks you about a thousand questions. So it's going to ask you all of these questions. What is your average price per customer? How many customers do you think you get on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, different hours of the day, right? What would your rent be and what type of – and it actually prompts you and walks you through the process of building a business plan. Now, once you go through that, you're going to want to change it a little and modify it and make it yours. But it taking you through the questioning process, so it really will help you. Uh, I'll learn what you need to do. So I would put together that. A PowerPoint, by the way, works just fine because somebody can click it on their computer. You can turn it into a PDF, right, from a PowerPoint. Okay. And then the PDF you can email and send to people or print, and it can't be changed, right, graphically. So, so uh, uh, a PowerPoint, in theory, could be changed. So what I'd love you to do is look at a few things. One, I'd like you to look at the neighborhood where you want to open your store. Two. Two. I'd like okay. you to determine what the average rent is in the neighborhood where you're going to be, okay? Okay. Now you have a rent number that you can plug in every month, an assumed rent number. Next. Okay. I want you to take a look at what it's going to cost for you to build your salon. I'm guessing, because I have some friends in your business, it's going to cost you roughly three dollars to $4,000 a station, which is one of those units right with the mirror the drawers one of those nice stations and a chair about three to four thousand a station maybe five thousand and then it's probably going to cost you you want to make a nice salon don't you you want it to be beautiful you know you don't want to slap paint on a wall yep you want wallpaper you don't want to slap paint on a wall you want nice uh, furniture in a waiting room so you want to do it right i would plan that you're going to spend about 40 to 50 dollars per square foot so if your facility is a 1,000 square feet, do $50 a foot. That'll cover nice floor and carpet, nice wallpaper, lighting if you want, some pendant lighting, and your workstations. Something like that makes sense, okay? Now you okay. have – have, and go online and research this. Make sure I'm right because I'm not in your business. I'm just speaking from the outside. Now you'll know what your rent costs, and you'll know it about what it'll cost you to build. Now you'll start to see how much money you need. Now – put together a marketing budget because you have to do some marketing you have to do some email right you want to you want to do some stuff in marketing and promotion uh, uh, even yes. working even you know doing a promotion with a local shoe store for example for women is a great way we do that with ladies nights we link with shoe stores cosmetic stores uh, uh, which you can do in a neighborhood so think about those kind of things and then land on a number How much is the average that a person is going to spend when they come to your salon? And I know some will spend more, some will spend less, but you need to pick a single number that's in the middle. How many people can you get on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? When you get through this process, you know what your rent is. You know what it costs for you to build it. You know what it costs for you to market it, to get it open. You know what your customers are going to spend, how many of them, so you know what your revenues are. And you can start to build a model. Now, let's talk about raising money. When you raise money, you can raise money one of two different ways. You can do an equity deal. An equity deal means that I'm buying half your business or 25% of your business. So you don't owe me the money because I put it in for equity. You with me? But when yeah. you go to sell the salon, whatever you sell it for, I'm in for my 25 or 50% because I own the equity in the business with you. Equity partners are a damn pain in the butt. And here's why. They, have, they can look at all your financials. They can second-guess everything. They can tell you they want purple wallpaper. They want pink floors. It can get very, very difficult from an accounting and frustrating standpoint with equity investors because everybody has their own opinion sometimes, and it needs to be your salon. Unless you own 51%, I wouldn't do an equity deal. I would not do a 50-50 deal if it's your salon. Make sense? Because yeah, yeah. it has to be an extension of your personality, not theirs. They're a passive investor. Uh, the other way to do it is to do a simple note. And you can do something very simple. And here's a great way to do it if they want to support you. You don't need a partner. You can still own 100% of the salon. Let's say this person lends you fifty grand. Fair number? yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Let's say that she invests $50,000. So your business signs a note with her. So she doesn't own equity. She has a note. She gets eighty percent of your profits until her fifty thousand is paid. Make sense? Yes. After her fifty thousand is paid, she gets ten or twenty percent forever. She doesn't own the business, but she gets a piece of the cash flow. So what would I get for my 50 grand? Well, I know that I'm getting my money out first, so that makes me feel good in that scenario. I'm getting 80% of the money. I know you're going to want to pay me off quickly, so you're going to market the hell out of it, get as many people in, right? Get me paid off as quickly yeah. as you can so that your income can go up. And then once I'm paid off, I get to continue to participate a little bit. So so that's a good way to structure it. There's another reason why that's that a good actually way.
0: Sounds, that sounds ideal. That sounds perfect. I know at the beginning you have to give, I mean, you have to put so much into it and then it all pays off once. I mean, of course, like what you said, once I'm finished paying her off, then after that it'll just keep getting better and better. Yeah. So
1: so um, now you're getting. So, after she's paid off, you're getting 80 to 90% of all the profits, and she gets 10% or something, you know, forever for doing that for you. But you still own 100% of the business. The day you sell it, it's still 100% yours. One other thing good about that structure, and a lot of people wanting to start a business will really uh, uh, like this. This is really important. Really important. You don't want to enter into a loan that you could ever default on. Because if you default on a loan, in theory, they could wind up owning your business or forcing you into bankruptcy, right? Because you can't make a loan payment. If your loan is for 80% of the profits or 50% of the profits or 60% of the profits, whatever number you land on, then there's no minimum payment, is there? If you don't make any money this month, you don't owe me anything. If you made a dollar, you owe me 80 cents. If you don't make a dollar, you don't owe me anything. You cannot default on that loan. Cause there's no minimum payment, that's really, really important. So if you structure a loan in that fashion, so that they get a, a you know primary you know majority of the cash flow till they're paid off, then they get a little participation forever. There's no minimum payment. The minimum payment is the percentage of profits when you make money. Uh, God forbid there's a snowstorm in February. People don't come to your salon. You lose money that month. You'll never default on the loan. That's how I would structure it. And let me give you one more really okay. cool idea that I think will help you raise money. Okay. If you if you have a good loyal client base, and let's say I'm one of your customers and let's say I'm gonna come X amount of times a year, and for what it's worth, I'm worth let's say fifteen hundred dollars a year to you for conversation's sake, okay, as a customer. Probably not a bad okay. number, right? I'm guessing average yeah. customer. So how about this? How about if you sell me a gift card for twelve hundred and fifty dollars? And I get fifteen hundred dollars worth of your services. And what if you go out and sell fifty of them, and you have all the money in advance? Now you're raising the money. You don't owe anybody anything, but you owe them the time for the gift card services that you gave out in advance. That's another way to do it, which is very innovative.
0: That sounds great. I'm writing all this down right
1: now. (laughs) So there you go. So that's some really that'll get you structured, and that's some good advice. And you have my email because I'm looking at the email that you sent me. So in a couple of weeks, if you have any other questions, send me another note. And you know what? I bet my listeners would love it if you call back in a few weeks. Let us know how you're doing, and I'll answer some more questions. Maybe we can all follow you as you get your dream. What do you think?
0: That would be amazing. Thank you so much, John. This has been so helpful. I'm, this is like perfect. This is a great start for me to figure out everything.
1: Great. Well, then let's talk in a few weeks. I want to hear how you're doing, okay?
0: Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it.
1: Take care.
2: All right, John, we have Tasha on the line, and her son has a question for you.
1: Uh Uh-huh, Tasha, your son's name is Tom?
0: Yes, he is. Hello, sir.
1: Hi. Before you even start, let me tell you and Tom something you'll probably smile. I went to prep school in Bristol, Connecticut many many years ago i used to spend a lot of time there when i was young it's a beautiful place it's it's actually a beautiful area of the country and uh, so when i saw bristol i couldn't help but smile so no,
0: i we, we that- did not know that. That's a very cool tidbit. Thank you. I
1: don't think I've ever said that publicly before, but I did when I was about twelve, thirteen, fourteen years old. I went to prep school there at a place called Laurel Crest Academy, which of course is gone. I think <laughs> I think they never recovered from me being there, maybe but, 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 uh, so you shut down
0: is what you did.
1: <laughs> maybe I did, Taj, you're right. So your son Tom has a question for me, huh? Yes.
0: Oh
2: hello, Mr. Taffer.
1: Hi Tom, how are you?
2: Good. You
1: Good, thank you. What's your question, my friend?
2: Okay, um, do you have any relationship with bar owners from past episodes?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't yeah. think I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question before, Tom. That's a great question. The answer is yes, and probably greater than you'd think. You know, some bar owners. I've done 172, I think, bar rescues now. I just shot another one last week. And some owners are really appreciative. We develop a very tight bond. So, for example, uh, Brad Bohannon and Steve Smith from Spirits on Bourbon, we talk all the time. Uh, uh, The Alexander family from uh, Moon Runners, uh, 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 I hear from them very, very often uh Jerry from um Sorties I hear from Jerry very very often the Tuberty brothers from, from from uh the Superstorm Sandy episode I hear from them very often so wow. there's probably out of the 170 I've done tom probably 30 of them we keep in touch and uh uh you know they're actually very appreciative of what I've done the other maybe uh let's say 30 are very appreciative and we're very close uh keep in touch Maybe about 100 of them, uh, 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 we have a good relationship, but maybe we don't keep in touch that often. And then maybe about 30 of them, <laughs> we probably don't keep in touch, if you know what I mean.
0: <laughs> oh, That's really good.
1: Well, thanks, Tom. It's a great question. Thank you for calling, my friend. Natasha, stay warm up there in Bristol. I'm in Las Vegas, by the way. Tom, I have an inch of snow in my backyard, and I live in the desert.
0: Wow. Yeah, we saw oh, that. that. That's crazy, right, Tommy? Yeah. I went to California last month to see my sister. Yeah.
1: Well, hopefully it'll be nice and warm there and you'll get out of the cold of Bristol. But it was very <laughs> nice very nice to talk to you both. Have a great great day and, and Tom keep coming up with great questions like that, okay? Thank you. Bye-bye. Listen, I'd really love it if you'd be on the show. You can challenge me, argue with me, disagree with me, agree with me, whatever you like. But the more challenging, the better. Just send an email to podcast at johntafford.com, podcast at johntafford.com. Corey will open those emails. He'll set it up with you. And then you and I will talk on a podcast and we'll have some fun. And by the way, while you're at it, don't forget to hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts or go to podcast.com or the Podcast One app and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday.
0: Want to talk to John? Email
1: him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. this was a great week. I want to thank my callers. These were some great calls. Didn't you think, Corey? Oh, yeah. I love when I can actually give business advice to somebody who's trying to open a business because I know so many people are thinking about opening a business. You know, when you think about something, I want you to think about this. Every idea in the world is worthless if we don't act upon it. Ideas mean nothing if we don't act upon them. So many times we come up with the idea we don't act upon it, somebody else does. Look at Ray Kroc at McDonald's. They didn't act on McDonald's, so he did. So when you think about acting or not acting, think of Mike McGowan. Think of how Mike acted when his life was on the line. Think of the fears, you know, those business failures that we talked about earlier. So I love pushing you over the edge. Moving you from thinking about it to actually doing it. And that was the best part of these audience calls this week. And, of course, Mike McGowan. Wow. What an interview that was. Look forward to talking to you all next week. I am heading to Los Angeles tomorrow. Meetings. Big Hollywood meetings at the network. I stay with a smile on my face. Having dinner with the president of my network, who's, a, who's a, of course, a friend. I've been on Paramount Network and Spike now for uh, almost nine years, Corey. Wow. Wow. I thought I'd do a pilot and go home, buddy. I'm, I'm starting uh, Tuesday, my 173rd bar rescue. Jeez. So we got 173 bar rescues, 20 back to the bars, and four Taffer worsen. We're still going strong. I'll talk to you all next week have a great week. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast 1. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on podcast1.com, the Podcast 1 app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review.